you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Many of you sitting here this morning will have heard many sermons before in your life. Though some of you maybe have only heard a few, but the question I want you to consider for a moment is this. What is, what was the greatest sermon you've ever heard? What was the greatest sermon that you've ever heard? Perhaps it was the sermon where God opened your heart and led you to faith in Christ and you believed. Perhaps it was a sermon that you heard sitting next to a, the, sitting next to a friend or a loved one when God opened their heart and their mind and led them to faith in Christ and they received salvation. Perhaps it was when God spoke very clearly to you about some sin in your life and moved you beyond that into greater holiness and godliness with Him. Perhaps it was when God spoke to you clearly about His design and calling for your life. Surely the greatest sermon that was ever preached was preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, namely Jesus Christ. As we have before us today in Luke 4... A sermon that Jesus preached, and it is perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached, not because of its eloquence, not because of its length, not because of anything other than the fact that the greatest preacher who ever lived, Jesus, is preaching about him and the greatest ministry there ever was, his role as the Messiah, the Savior of our sins. Here in this sermon, Jesus not only preaches about his work as the Messiah, but how he will bring that salvation of God to sinners. And it's here today, as we have been tracking through Luke's gospel so far, we have, we have seen this prediction and this revealing of God in Christ. We have seen him growing up at 12, the snapshot of his life as he realizes now who he is as the Messiah. And we've seen him battling Satan, and now we see him at the very beginning of his ministry. And it reveals to us who Jesus believed he was and what he had come to do. There is lots of scholarly debate, which has found its way into uh, popular shows like on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel that, that say there are discrepancies between what Christ's uh, people say he was and how Christ himself believed himself to be. But the reality is here there is no escaping the fact that Jesus believed he was the promised Messiah come to bring salvation to God's people. So today, as we look to these verses in chapter 4, we see what it means for Jesus to be the Christ and how he would accomplish his ministry as the Christ. It begins with the opening verses of our passage, verses 13 and 14 of Luke chapter 4. There we read that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went all throughout the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And these verses, our passage begins by showing us that Jesus came preaching in the power of the Spirit. Jesus came preaching in the power of the Spirit. That's the very thing that Luke tells us. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Jesus returned, but where did he return from? Where, where had he been that he was coming back from? Well, if we just go back and read the first few verses of chapter 4, you see that Jesus is coming from the wilderness. He is returning from 40 days of prayer and fasting, and at the end of that time, enduring an onslaught of temptation from Satan himself, tempting him to forsake his ministry and mission as the, as the Christ. 
Yet from that temptation time in the wilderness, Jesus emerged victorious and is now returning to the region where he grew up, the region of Galilee. And he is returning in the power of the Spirit. Jesus, we know, is no stranger to the Spirit. Back in chapter 1, we saw that his very conception took place by the power of God's Spirit overshadowing a young virgin named Mary. When he was around 30 years old, Jesus began his ministry just a, a, a few months before this, being baptized, the Spirit descending upon him bodily like a dove, encouraging not only Jesus that he would be with him for his ministry, but also assuring all those that would look around at that time at Jesus' baptism that he was the anointed servant of God. Then as chapter 4 begins, we see the Spirit demonstrating his presence, but not only leading Jesus through victory, but giving him the power to have victory in his battle against temptation with Satan. And now that empowering continues as Jesus begins fully his ministry, a ministry of preaching. Where did he preach? Verse 15, he taught in the synagogues. Now you will find, as we read through the Gospel of Luke, and as you read through the rest of the New Testament, that the synagogues are talked about a lot. The question then is, what is a synagogue? What was a synagogue? Where did they come from? If you read the Old Testament, you will not find any mention of synagogues. They're not there. Why? Because the religious center for the people of Israel in the Old Testament was the temple. In fact, God said, you can't go and establish places of worship around the countryside. Why? Because he knew exactly what would happen. What did happen when they defied God and established places of worship around the countryside? They worshiped false gods. And they worshiped God falsely. And yet, it was during their time of the exile, when they had sinned so much that God said, the land will literally vomit you out of it, and you will be carried off into exile for your sins. The temple is destroyed. They have no more temple. So they established these synagogues, these places where they would come, they would pray to the living God, they would have scripture read, and they would engage in fellowship with one another. In Jesus' day, people would regularly gather together on the Sabbath to sing the Psalms, to hear Scripture read, and to pray. And we know from history that synagogues could be found where there were at least ten faithful Jewish men who would gather together. And this is where Jesus begins his ministry. Just as he was born in humility, so Jesus begins his work as the Messiah in humility. Not going directly to Jerusalem, the center of religious life in Israel, uh, standing at the front of the temple preaching. No, he goes to the very edges of Israel in Galilee, the backwater region as it were. Yet the effect of Jesus' preaching is anything but humble. Luke says that Jesus' spirit-backed preaching causes a report about him to go out throughout all the surrounding area so that he was being glorified by all. Jesus and his preaching was being praised by the whole region. And Luke clues us in on something by the word that he uses here. The word glorify is most often used when God himself is being glorified. And I think Luke is wanting us to know that though the people do not yet know it, God is in their midst in the person of Jesus Christ. Thus, if Jesus was on the defensive in the wilderness, being attacked by Satan, now he is on the offensive against him through his preaching. He is opening up the word of God for the people of God, giving them comfort and hope, drawing them to deeper faith in God. Jesus will do many things in his ministry as the Christ. He will heal diseases. He will cast out demons. He will train disciples. He will confront the false shepherds of Israel. But this is where it begins. This is the heart of Jesus' ministry, the preaching and the teaching of God's 
word. Among other things, that should say something to us today about the importance of seeking out solid, Bible-based, spirit-powered preaching. This weekend, uh, the men who went to the men's retreat at Bambi Lake uh, got to hear some of that kind of preaching. And on the first night, after the first main sermon, at least a couple of us had our smartphones out, wondering, I wonder if this guy's church has posted any of his sermons online. It was good stuff. We wanted to hear more. In fact, we found some, and now they're on my hard drive. But where does Jesus go to find preaching? Uh, Going online and finding uh, a great sermon podcast to listen to during the week on your drive to work or when you're on the treadmill, that's one way to find good Bible-based, spirit-powered preaching. But notice, Jesus did not begin his ministry like his cousin John. John just went out in the middle of the wilderness and said, come out here and be baptized, and was preaching uh, an open-air public message. Jesus didn't do that. That's not how he started. Jesus started among the congregations of God's people where they were gathering to worship. And I would say that not only by example of Jesus here, but in what we see from the rest of the New Testament, the first and best place to hear the preaching and teaching of God's word is in the context of God's people, the the, the local gathering of God's congregation. In saying that, though, I don't want you to assume that I am saying that I am this a magnificent preacher, that this is somehow one big commercial for me and what I do here today. No, in any church, in any pulpit, and with any preacher, there can be Bible-based, spirit-powered, God-glorifying preaching, and that is what we should seek out. Furthermore, just because someone like me or another pastor uh, may have succeeded in that task one Sunday is no guarantee he's going to do it the next week. Therefore, you should always be in prayer for those that stand behind this sacred desk, God's pulpit, to preach God's word to his people. You should be praying during the week that they would be studying hard to arrive at a right understanding of the scriptures. But more than that, that they would know God's power, God's illuminating work during their time in the study, and God's empowering presence behind this pulpit. And then you should come expecting to hear something from God when you gather together with his people. Don't come because it's a habit. Don't come because it's a tradition. Don't come because you're going to feel guilty if you don't show up to church on Sunday. Come hungry to hear God's word proclaimed in the power of God's spirit. Because that is how Jesus went and did ministry. That was the very heart and soul, the very beginnings of what he did. He preached to God's people who were gathering together hungry for God's word. Jesus preached, and it was not only empowered by God's Spirit, it was also full of grace. And this is the second thing that we see. Jesus came preaching God's gracious word. God's gracious word. Remember, Jesus has been gone for a while. It's been a couple of months at least. He left his home. We don't know what he told his mom and his brothers and sisters, but he leaves his home and spends 40 days in the wilderness. Then, as the text says, he's been going from week to week, preaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath. Given the number of main villages in the area of Galilee, it's it's probably been at least three months since Jesus has been home, and now suddenly he is home. He's back in Nazareth, and what does he do? He immediately arrives on the Sabbath and goes to the hometown synagogue. And here we get a glimpse of Jesus preaching. Luke says in verse 16, When Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
Now, at one level, there wasn't anything special about Jesus standing up to read. Any qualified man could, uh, in the group could get up and read, and yet there was something special about Jesus getting up to read. Because at this point, Jesus' reputation had arrived before him. Jesus had created quite a stir going from synagogue to synagogue throughout the region of Galilee. We saw there was a fame that had, that had come up around him. He was being glorified by all, and Galilee's not that big. Something, something good or bad happens, and, and it's not much long before all of Bay City hears about it, right? Can you imagine uh, Galilee and the, the close-knit community among these small little villages? Jesus' reputation comes before him. There's a sense of expectation. This is, this is hometown pride. This is the little kid that we saw growing up, and he's made a name for himself. What is he going to preach about? What is it going to be like when he comes here and preaches for us? And Luke tells us in verse 17 that as he got up to read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? As we think about this sermon that he preaches first of all think about jesus familiarity with the scriptures there are no chapters or verses back then yet every scroll was basically the same because they want to make sure that copies did not have errors in it so each section they would be the, the hebrew scholars and the scribes will tell you how many hebrew characters were supposed to be across the top of the column how many were supposed to be down the column what the middle character was supposed to be and what the first and last character was supposed to be that helped ensure nobody skipped a word nobody left out a word of god nobody added to the word of god so here is jesus He has grown up going to the synagogue, reading the scriptures from these very scrolls his entire life, feasting on God's word. He knows what he wants to preach on. So when they hand him the Isaiah scroll, he knows exactly where the text is. He opens the scroll, scans across the page, and finds the text. Without missing a beat, he opens it right up and declares his ministry as the Messiah. I want you to have that image in your mind and then I want to think about your own life and I want you to ask yourself, how well do we know God's word? I I don't mean a specific Bible, although that that might be helpful. There was one man who had one Bible. It was a very nice Bible, and he had read it essentially his whole life. And if you asked him where is John 12, verses 1 through 10, he could tell you it's on the left side of the page on on the upper part. Where is Psalm 39? It's on the right-hand lower side. It's split between the, the bottom of that page and the top of the next page. He, he, he had so soaked in God's word that he knew immediately every text. That, that's certainly helpful, but what about the content? If some guy picks up a Bible and just randomly flips it open in a coffee shop and starts reading from Ezekiel, and he happens to look across and see you having a devotional time. And he says, hey, is that a Bible? Yeah. So I'm reading Ezekiel. I don't know what, what it's about. I can't make any heads up. What is it about? Do you know what Ezekiel's about? What are you going to say to him? Do you know what Ezekiel's about? You know what Jeremiah's about? You know what the book of Judges is about? 
Do you know any Psalms other than the 23rd? Do you have any verses memorized beyond John 3:16, as glorious as a verse as that is? How familiar are we with God's word? Jesus sets the example here, not with divine power, but as a human being, a man. He devoted himself to the scriptures, and so should we. Think about what's going on in the minds of those people listening, second of all. They are astonished, even appreciative, at the gracious words coming from his mouth. Yet at the same time, they are saying to each other, isn't this Joseph's boy? How can he speak with such authority? You know, I, I, uh, I have, <laughs> having not only studied this text before, but having experienced going back home to preach in churches, I have the same fear that this is running through people's minds. Isn't that little Johnny? Wasn't that the little snotty boy running around VBS, racing cars in the Pinewood Derby? Some of you don't know anything about Pinewood Derby. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And you get up and you try and be authoritative from the scriptures and say, this is God's will for your life. And they're saying, isn't that little Johnny? Is he really really telling us what we should be doing? It is true that familiarity breeds contempt. And the the same thing is is here. It's not just southern Ohio. It's, It's the city of Nazareth. They are finding it hard to believe that here is Jesus able to make these promises, able to preach with such authority. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't the kid? Isn't this the same kid that we've known growing up all along? But more than that, it also comes from the sections of Isaiah that he reads, from Isaiah 61 and a little bit from Isaiah 58. Jesus reads a passage that speaks directly, was well known for speaking directly to the ministry of the Messiah. First of all, did you notice that in Jesus' day at the synagogue, that the tradition is flipped? They stood to read God's word, and then they sat when they were ready to give the sermon. This is why Luke says he began to tell them. We don't have the whole sermon here. Luke has given us the summary. He's given us the nuts and bolts to know what it is. We don't have the whole thing. And yet he is telling them, remember, that Messiah, when he comes, was going to be, uh, he's going to be anointed by God's Spirit to preach. And who will he preach to? What will he preach? He will preach to the poor. Not just those in physical poverty, but spiritual poverty. And to them, he will preach good news of salvation. To those who are captive in sin, Jesus says the Messiah will proclaim, he will preach freedom from that sin given from God. To those who are blind to spiritual things, who are in ignorance and are just groping around blindly for God, not sure where to go or what to do or what to believe, God says the Messiah will come and provide spiritual sight that they might see and know God. And to the oppressed, he will not simply preach liberty. He will bring liberty to them. Unlike the prophets before who could only proclaim God's word, the Messiah will bring it about. He will fulfill the righteousness of God, healing God's people, setting them free from demonic oppression, and bringing about justice for even the lowliest of society. Not least of all, he will grant forgiveness of sins. Thus Christ is telling them the very thing that the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor pointed to, full and final salvation for God's people, that has now come with my standing behind this desk in a synagogue and preaching to you. Today, in my preaching, this ministry of the Messiah has begun to be fulfilled. All of your spiritual hopes and longings are becoming reality today. That's what Jesus was proclaiming 
in that synagogue. That's why it was gracious words to them. This morning as we see that text, as we see what Jesus says he has come to do, as we see what he said he was going to accomplish, what are our spiritual hopes and dreams? What do we desire to have from God? Do we need freedom from addictions that are destroying our life? Do we need freedom from guilt of our past indiscretions and rebellious living? Do we need peace with God? Aside from the language we speak and the clothes that we wear, we are are not much different from those people sitting in that synagogue 2,000 years ago. We're human beings. We're born with the same desires to love and to be loved to have relationships, to have a a good life free from pain and fear. And yet, just like them, we are all marred by sin. We need the grace of God in our life because spiritually, we are like them. We are poor, we are captive, we are blind, and we are oppressed. And just as in Jesus' day, so also in our day, Jesus can bring salvation to us. In fact, he alone is the Savior, not just for them, but for us today as well. If we will simply admit our spiritual poverty, if we will humble ourselves and say, I I don't have it all together. I, I can't make sense of my life. I need help. I need spiritual life and vitality. I need freedom from my sins and the destruction I'm bringing on my life. Then God will forgive. He will give life. He will give freedom. He will bring salvation to us today but to put our faith in jesus we must first come to grips with that sin this is the third thing that we see from our passage this morning jesus came preaching to expose our sin jesus came preaching to expose our sin jesus teaching seemed to please those in the synagogue luke says that they thought that they were gracious words declaring the coming of god's salvation but jesus already knew the reality of their hearts he knew what was lingering behind the smiling faces verse 23 jesus said to them doubtless you will quote to me this proverb physician heal yourself What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. People of Nazareth like Jesus. They are impressed with Jesus. They are happy to hear the offer of God's grace from Jesus. But they are a little dubious about whether or not he can bring about all that he says he's going to bring about. And behind that skepticism is something even far worse, faithlessness before God. Jesus begins rooting out their sin by saying, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you say at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, what does this mean? What is this proverb meant to mean? Well, in that day, medicine was a little more haphazard than it is today. Interestingly enough, Luke 
a doctor himself, still puts that in there. He knew that unlike he who was the personal physician of the Apostle Paul, who helped him on his missionary journey, some were not like him. All were not like him. Some were little better than witch doctors. And so when a remedy was offered, sometimes it was a bit bizarre. And often it was received with skepticism. Will this, will this thing that's smoking and green and smells foul, will this actually get rid of my pain? Or is it going to make me worse? Is it going to kill me? And so the popular proverb was, uh, physician, heal thyself. Uh, you take the first sip. And if you survive, then I'll drink it down as well. As popular as that was, Jesus is applying it in a different way. The salvation that he promises to bring, they are saying to themselves, don't you need that salvation too? Aren't you just like one of us? More than that, the Apostle Paul, speaking of his own people in 1 Corinthians, would later say, Jews demand signs. They want evidence. They want proof. Here was Jesus who grew up in the same town, down the same road that they all traveled on. His parents didn't appear to be anything special. Jesus didn't appear to be anything special. He was just like them. How can he offer salvation? Moreover, Jesus, we've heard about the things you did over in Capernaum. We heard about the miracles. We heard about the healings. We heard about the, the demons fleeing. Why don't you do that here? Well, why don't you give us some sign to let us know you can actually bring about the things that you're talking about? Why don't you live up to the expectations that we have? Why don't you live up to the reputation you've got, Jesus? Show us something that will make us believe in you. That's what Jesus is saying they're thinking, and that's in their hearts. It's a bit ironic, isn't it, that Jesus has just come from the wilderness where he has told the devil it was wrong to put God in the test. And ironically here, this is the very thing that these people are seeking to do. How does Jesus respond? How does he respond to the evil intentions of their heart? He tells them a couple of stories. Jesus, we will see as we finish Luke over the remaining months of our time here, he does this a lot. Actually, he doesn't, he doesn't tell them stories. Those. They aren't parables. He actually reminds them of stories of historical events that take place in Old Testament Israel. These are events in the lives of two of the greatest prophets, Elijah and Elisha. They are stories that they would have been familiar with. And in both instances, God blessed miraculously Gentiles and not his own people, Israel. In the first instance, which you can read about in First Kings 17... There was a famine in the land. It was a famine because of the sin of Israel. And Jesus says only one person had relief from that famine in that time. And she wasn't even an Israelite. She was a Gentile widow. Yet the prophet miraculously gave her food. Then there's the story of Naaman in 2 Kings 5. He wasn't some old widow. He was a Syrian general. An enemy of God's people. Yet he received God's miraculous blessing as well. Jesus says, there are are many widows in Israel. There were many, there were many women starving who didn't have food. There were many men who were starving and didn't have food. All of God's people for years were under this famine. But God only sent Elijah to one house, to the house of Zarephath. When he gets there, he says, hey, I'm a prophet of God, make me some food. She's like, I can't do that. She says, I've got just this tiny drop of oil left. I've got just these few little sprinkles of flour left. 
I'm getting ready to make one final little thing, and my son and I are going to go lay down and die. That's all we've got. We've got nothing. And Elijah says, make the bread. And keep making the bread until you can't make any more. Okay. So she goes in. She puts the oil in the flour, and she starts kneading. And she looks down in the containers. There's more flour, and there's more oil. So she brings it out, she makes more, and she makes more, and she makes more. And it seemingly is an endless supply of oil and flour. She not only feeds herself, she feeds God's prophet. Why? Simply this. She trusted and obeyed the word of God given to her by the prophet. Then there was Naaman. There's lots of lepers in Israel during his day. And yet here was this Syrian general. He was told by the prophet Elijah, I have no medicine for you. I'm not going to wave a magic wand over you. You go down to the river and you dip yourself down seven times and God will heal you. And at first he's a little unsure. And as people say, he's a prophet of God. What can you lose? Trust him and do what he says. So Naaman goes down to the river. He goes down once. He comes up, he's still a leper. He goes down twice, he comes up, he's still a leper. Three times, a leper. Four times, a leper. Five times, a leper. Six times, would you have stopped at this point? You're thinking, surely some of the leprosy would be washing off. What is going on? I feel like an idiot out here. I'm going to be a buffoon in front of all my men. Seventh time, he goes down and he comes up clean. No leprosy. Healed by God. Why? He was given no sign before the healing. The healing was the sign. It was an affirmation of his faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. Both the widow and the general saw their desperate condition and they believed the word of God given to them that would heal them. Jesus is clear here. Miracles won't come to the people of Nazareth. Signs won't be given. And therefore, freedom and sight and forgiveness will not come. Why? Because they have not believed the word of God. In their sin, they have not believed. They are faithless and they reject the word preached to them. And yet, he says, even to the outsider, even to the Gentile, to the enemy of God, salvation will come. Today, some of you here may feel like an outsider. You may be sitting here feeling like I don't belong in a church. I'm not worthy of God's acceptance. And yet here is the gracious words of Jesus exposing not only your sin, but giving the offer of salvation to anyone. Jesus is saying it doesn't matter if you are an outsider. It doesn't matter if you feel worthless. God is still offering to forgive you. God is still offering to bring you in and to bless you. It doesn't matter if you've been raised in church all your life or if you've never stepped in church until this day. God is offering to save you. Not because of some miraculous sign, but simply by believing in his word. That you are a sinner in need of salvation and that you cannot save yourself and yet God has sent his son Jesus to be the redeemer, the savior for us and it is by trusting in him and in the offer of salvation that he extends that God will do the miracle of cleansing us from sin, of giving us spiritual life and sight. Others of you though are here and you're a bit like the crowds. 
you like Jesus. You think there's something there, but you want more. You want a sign. You want him to prove that he is who he says he is. And in a minute, we'll tell you how Jesus proved that he is who he says he is. But don't miss the warning of Jesus here either. The offer of salvation may not last forever. If you reject the word like the men of this synagogue, it may never come back to you again. Turn to Christ and believe. Finally, there are many of you here who are members of this church. Some of you enjoy the grace you've received, but you're very stingy in giving it out. Rather than remembering the compassion shown to you by Christ, you look down your nose on outsiders and sinners. You consider yourself better than them and don't worry about taking the gospel to them. If someone would come up to you, you might say something to them, but you cannot actually fathom leaving the safety and security of your routines and your comforts to go outside the camp, as Hebrew says, to talk about Jesus to people who are in need whether spiritual need or physical need. The thought of a drunk repels you. The thought of a homosexual repels you. And therefore you say, I'm never going to see them. I would never go to downtown Bay City and walk around and find the homeless guys and share the love of Christ with them and buy a meal. You're stingy and uncompassionate when God has been gracious and compassionate. And the warning that Jesus gives to us is this. Do you suppose that if we are unwilling to show grace to others, God would continue to show grace to us? Do you think if we are unwilling to be compassionate to the needy, to the spiritually needy that are around us, that God would continue to have his hand of blessing on this church and allow it to grow and to prosper and to further in ministry? What ministry is there if we're not willing to share the gospel with those in need? Jesus came preaching in the power of God's spirit, proclaiming God's gracious words to expose our sin. And Jesus also finally came preaching to prepare for the cross. Jesus came preaching to prepare for the cross. The crowd in the synagogue knew exactly what Jesus was saying to them. They understood full well where what he was getting at. That they were like faithless Israelites of old who refused to obey God's law, who rejected the word of God from the prophets and therefore suffered the loss of his gracious blessing and presence. In verse 28, Luke records the reaction to Jesus. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Yesterday we heard a pastor say he likes keeping some big guys around because sometimes he has to say hard things to harden people. I thought to myself, that's why I have Joe and Richard as elders. Military men who own guns and know how to use them. Jesus has nothing like that. On the day of his arrest, all his disciples will run for cover. One will even be grabbed by a soldier and and being so scared, he wiggles out of his clothes and runs away naked into the night. Now Jesus has no disciples. He stands alone. What began as a happy homecoming quickly turns into a lynch mob and seemingly there is no escape. Why the sudden turn 
primarily because Jesus wounded their ethnic pride. Jews of his day despised Gentiles. Even the temple bore this inscription at the front. Let no Gentile enter within the partition and barrier surrounding the temple, and whosoever is caught shall be responsible for his subsequent death. It sadly reminds me of some churches in the 50s and the 60s who had signs that said no dogs or black people on the front. I wonder how many of us would want a sign that would say no sinners out front. Yet here Jesus is saying that Gentiles, outsiders, they will see the salvation of God before you ever will because you have no faith in God. I am here in your midst. I am God in the flesh. I am preaching to you His grace, the day of salvation. But you are so hardened in your hearts that you will not hear. You will not respond. You're demanding signs. And therefore, I'm going to go somewhere else. And salvation will come to them instead. At this point, Jesus was uttering blasphemy at worst. He was a false prophet at best. And so they tried to execute the judgment for both, death by stoning. Yet instead of picking up rocks and dashing them against him, as Riken points out in his commentary, quote, sometimes it's simply easier to throw someone off a cliff dashing them against the rocks. They're trying to kill Jesus, but they don't succeed. And Luke is a little coy here. We don't know if it's a miracle or Jesus simply managing to, to get away. All we know is that he is passing through their midst and he went away from them. Jesus escaped the murderous crowds and left. The sad fact is Nazareth is never again mentioned in the Bible as a place where Jesus went to do ministry. Never again. As far as we know, he never went back home. What we do know is this. Just as his preaching would be the hallmark of his ministry as the Messiah, as he proclaimed the coming of God's salvation, so this salvation will be achieved by his death and resurrection. I think Luke is vague here because he is, he, he is causing us to wonder and yet he's causing us to anticipate the end of the book. Then sinful men will again take Jesus by, the, by their hands and seek to take his life and they will succeed. Not because Jesus couldn't escape like he did here, but because he chooses not to escape. He willingly lays down his life for sinners, allowing himself to be arrested and falsely accused and tried and be crucified under God's wrath for those that would crucify him. He will die that they might live. He will be counted as sin so that they will find forgiveness. And just as the murderous intent of the people here are thwarted, so the murderous intent of those who finally killed Jesus will ultimately be thwarted, for God will raise him back to life from the dead, proving his death was acceptable to God as an atoning sacrifice for sin and justifying Christ in the face of his enemies, showing the whole world he truly is the appointed Savior of all people that's the sign jesus gives us you'll kill me but i'll come back to life in three days that's the sign that we have the only sign that we're given that jesus message is truth from god not to be rejected but be believed in on many occasions, my wife and I have had times when we've been dressed up for some occasion, whether it's church or Easter Sunday or a wedding. And our four children, one or more of them, have been dressed up with us. And on one occasion, I can remember one of our children got some food on their clothes. Melinda was finishing getting ready, and I'm looking at this thing, panicking. I get a washcloth, I get it wet, and I start dabbing 
at the mark, and that's not working. So then I begin rubbing, and it's not working. It's just getting bigger and slightly lighter. The miserable failure that it was, I yelled for Melinda to come and to help, but it was to no avail. The spot was not going away. To her credit, she says, it is what it is. Let's go. But the reality is that stain is much like our sin, and we can't just say it is what it is. Let's go. Because of that indelible mark on our soul, we deserve and will receive the just wrath of God. His condemnation, the Bible says, already hangs over us when we're born into this world because that mark is an essential part of our lives. No one is born not a sinner into this world. And yet Jesus here offers a cleansing that only God can bring, a cleansing that will remove that stain of sin forever. And today, the first response to the message is, believe Jesus to be your Savior. If you've never done it before, today, now, believe that Jesus is your Savior. Say, I don't know how to do that. Every week in our bulletin, there is a sample prayer. It's not a magic formula. You put it in your own words, but it tells you, It tells you how to approach God and receive the gift that he offers in Christ. If you've already trusted in Christ, you've you've been for years walking with God, then continue to believe that Jesus is your Savior. And in believing, treasure the preaching of God's word. For it is the means by which God's gracious condemnation of our sin and offer of salvation continually come into our lives to build us up in our faith and to grow deeper our roots of godliness. It is also the means by which others hear about Jesus. Preaching is not just what's done behind this pulpit. It is done every time we open our mouths and speak God's word In fact, more often than not, the preaching of the word of God in the New Testament is the preaching of the gospel. And guess what? All of you who have believed are equipped to do that because you've heard the gospel and believed. You know what you believed, and therefore you can share it with others. We must be loving those that are spiritually poor and needy just like us, telling them about Christ so that he can fulfill their needs. Just like us, they need the saving work of Christ in their lives today. Father, we are thankful for your son. We are thankful, God, that his ministry was not one of vague signs that could be interpreted in many different ways, of odd sayings to be mulled over for years. God, Jesus came clearly, simply preaching the good news of your willingness to save sinners. And God, he didn't just preach. He is the one who accomplished salvation for us. God, may we look to him in faith, remembering our sin, the judgment that we deserve, remembering that not just the crowds who were there, but us in our sin hung Jesus on the cross. He died for us, but he also rose for us. And as we enjoy your saving grace, God, may we do so in a way that propels us out among the needy, among the spiritually impoverished, among those who are captive to their sin, that we might preach freedom to them just as it was preached to us. Father, we pray this with thankfulness and gratitude to your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.